Hello, this is episode 70 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. And today we have a guest from someone who's a, who's a bit uh, in the midst of the, the dissident right and some other circles and uh, some more inflammatory circles uh, in and out of it regarding. Um, goes by the moniker Luthemplar, formerly Cringe Walker, if you're familiar with his uh, Twitter conquests in the past. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and planning on eventually uh, uh, renaming it again to Aleph. I, I think it is set to that on my name here. Uh, I, I like the Greek word truth more than the Greek word freedom now. Not, not The more into the distant right I've gone, the less I've been a fan of uh, all, all the new, I guess, French Revolution terms, the more classical terms have begun, become more favorable to me. Uh, Aleph Templars is... Uh, the, the the thorn templar there comes from like the the warrior uh the ancient warrior the, the, the knight's order and the aleth is the greek that gets added on to there it used to be eluth which is the greek for freedom or enlightenment really uh but i didn't like that now now that i hate the enlightenment i'm like maybe i should change it to something better <laughs> <laughs> it's very christopher marlowe as your point of view keeps changing you keep changing you know your appearance your name yeah I like it because gone gone. It's it's kind of the opposite of these guys who you know they had to dig their feet in the ground and later on they like realize they're wrong and like well I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to keep the elements of this uh, that way I cannot you know have an egg on my face but you're kind of like no I was I was wrong I don't like this anymore so <laughs> yeah, well the, there was a you know I, I've said many times the reason why I chose the name. Cringe Walker originally was because of AA's uh, pro empire posting a while back, uh, which he still, I think he recently just did another quick uh, YouTube short about it. But uh, it was it was for its time. And many people said I shouldn't change my name because I was so well known by that name. But I mean, I like tripled in size once I did, so I I guess I proved them wrong. I don't know if I'm going to keep proving them wrong though. Yeah, it's always like the old. Kind of like the old guard of like the cult favorite that you know sometimes may slow you down a little bit. It's like uh, it's very much a, it's equivalent to people who were a fan of a band in like their early days and then like refine their sound and get more popular. Like man, you weren't even there in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't even know. I, I've I've been guilty of that with my dark hipster past from high school. But um, yeah, I've since since lightened up a little bit. Although for the most part, I'm very pro gatekeeping. Um, but yeah, so. You know, this you're kind of the second guest that I've had in this neck of the woods, Jay Burden being the first. I'm familiar with you because of Jay Burden. Um, you know, familiar with Jay Burden because of, you know, the likes of T7 and Morgoth and, and AA that I started getting into about two or three years ago, but really a lot more heavily a year ago. Um, so I'm still in this process of kind of introducing all these players to my audience. It mainly comes from Instagram. Uh, it comes from you know, the people who are now establishing what's called Careless Press, which is our joint effort of all the creators on that side of things. But uh, we found out about a year ago that we're pretty isolated. You know, not too many people know what we're doing. I think the first to really cross over was Anacreon when he was on um, Alex Kashuda's podcast. So for the sake of, you know, introducing yourself to a new audience, could you just describe, you know, who you are, why you started posting um, and where your content's going? Uh yeah, I, yeah, I, I've been following vaguely on the you know outer rings of of right wing stuff 
for years. I, I, I consider myself fairly center or, or possibly even left-wing for a while, but nowadays I don't really ascribe to left or right at all. Um, and my main thought, I guess, I guess I could take you back to like 2014, 2016 when I was a wee little college kid. And, uh, I just kind of felt like there were, there was an increasingly, uh, you know, it, it was definitely anti the term anti-white gets used nowadays. Back then in all technical aspect, it was just anti-American. It was anti, uh, I guess, anti-patriot. As, as they called it back then in the libertarians and everything. I, I don't know. It was a kind of like a hodgepodge of different political climates, but I, I grew concerned about it. I, I'm not like entirely like some pure blooded someone. I've, I've said many times I've, uh, I'm, I'm basically like, like 8% Jewish from my great grandmother and uh, a mix of Irish and, and very Slavic peoples. Um, if I, I did a DNA test once and got random Mongolian genes. So I'm like, kind of like a mudblood, but uh I don't like. I didn't like the direction of politics back in the, you know, right before Trump came into the scene. And, and I'm not even a, a very good fan of Trump, but it just seemed to be something a little like you had the sense that someone was was getting ready to pull a trigger. And there's still, I think, like since 2020, that 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 evident has the evidence of that has has grown. And I'm just like, well, there's something wrong with the political cultural environment of America and, and the general West. Like it, it really is seemingly self-destructive and suicidal. And I, at, at a fundamental level, like why aren't you allowed to enjoy your, your origins anymore? Like I, I the, the old left-wing kind of Benite side of me still, still thinks that everybody deserves to like have a joy of their origin. Everybody should like enjoy their tribe. Everyone should have this like, 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 not pride but like a, a certain sense of like yeah i am that i come from that and it and it has a right to exist regardless of who um as, as i've gotten older i've kind of sent, tended to be a little bit more um aware that the bible gives different blessings and cursings to different people um but not not in i don't think that's like outside of the of the redemptive power of christ or anything it's just like you start with a certain like you know min max in the in the game of life and christ can help you uh get over that <laughs> yeah i mean i think you know coming from where you are in your neck of the woods uh you know i don't think it's a secret that you're a native new yorker yeah, um, when you come from a place like that uh that's so heavily dare i say diverse um you're you're just you're sandwiched in with a bunch of people you're packed like a sardine in the subway depending on what time of day you're going um and you have a bunch of different people and a bunch of different customs and ideas and different eras in just such a compressed environment. If you don't start to look around, you're kind of just closing your eyes completely. Although New York is probably the best place to disappear if you really want to be left alone because everyone's in a rush to get somewhere. No one's really looking at you. Yeah, yeah. It's I've often said that like, if you want to imagine the experience of growing up in New York, imagine like... You have this route that you go to work every day. It's the same road, the same bus stop, the same train stop. And one day you decide to take one road to the right or one road to the left. You will you will find that like you've gotten used to the people that you're around on that commute. And just by stepping one block differently, you, you discovered that there's a whole other city one block away from you. Uh, for, it, the New York City is, is, is many cities in threads that, that go parallel and rarely mix. And you can go your whole life without knowing about certain corners. It's it's wild. Uh, ever since I kind of realized that, like this is like way back when I was a kid, 
uh, in like the late nineties, basically. I, I've always been someone who enjoys taking the step, one step to the right or one step to the left and seeing what new worlds might, might, I might fall into. And you know, like I'll fall into a random West African restaurant and be like, damn, I never even heard of this random spice. It's, it, it's <laughs> killing my mouth right now, but I'm glad I took that step to the left. Or like I'll take a step to the right and like find a, a Norwegian uh, fishery that I've never even heard of existing. And like, dang, this came away from the Baltic Sea. It's damn good. <laughs> yeah, but you're actually describing like one of my literal experiences in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Like I was, uh, I was gonna go see. This is still when I was still in the cocktail bar game, and I was living this, you know, late night. Know, brooding in a corner of a bar writing poetry <laughs> and like i'm supposed to be at sparring practice in four hours and i finally you know eat the 24 dollar uber back to brooklyn but you know on my way there i'm getting uh, i'm getting in taking the l train to you know from williamsburg to west or sorry to the east village slash alphabet city and i'm walking and i realize i'm hungry and I don't want Italian food. And I see a Nigerian restaurant. Like, it's kind of uncanny, the exact, you know. It's a <laughs> right now. And various, like, late, late night walks where I'm like, I'm going to go through West Village and Tribeca. And I'm going to go all the way down to the Red Dead Rabbit on, uh, on Water Street. And I've just gone through, like, three lifetimes and my friends back in <laughs> Just truly do not understand. Um yeah, you know, I, I've I've thought about it a lot. Like, there's there's over two hundred and and something countries in the world, which basically means it's impossible to spend a year in every country. Uh, you you can't live long enough to spend a year a full year in every country. Uh, and the best thing about living in New York is you you really do get to see the world in like everywhere. Uh. I, this is why, like, uh, despite everything that the shit that the city gets, I'm never going to move from this place. I, if, if I do, it'll be a summer house. I'm I'm primarily going to stay in New York probably for the rest of my life because uh, I, I I like hearing stories. I like exploring new worlds, and and I'm like I'm like the fucking Star Trek character. Uh, but <laughs> but like yeah, I mean like like you you've you've done it to yourself where like you like today I'm going to discover new things about a random part of the world that I'll never be able to visit and never be probably never see, but people from there live here i'm gonna see it now, now now saying that i don't want the entire country to be like that i'm okay with the cities being that way but the countryside like that's that's angloland let them be like living here also like you you do get the sense that like the the urban elite do really hate the people out of the city and it's just like well, why put the effort into hating these people you'll never agree with and you'll probably never even meet like why do you want to destroy them uh, and, and I've gotten interesting conversations with progressives about this because, like, if you approach them from like the the hatchling, you know, the famous hatchling ap approach, where like you pretend not to know anything, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can you can get them to be a little self reflective about how hateful they are. Um, but like, them, yeah, if you go head on, they'll just they'll hit you in the face with a crowbar. But if you bait them into into a mirror, then it's just it all comes crashing down from the yeah mirror. and. and I, I've started saying it to people where, like, I, I think the troll culture has to die, or, the, or you're, you are going to get your civil war. <laughs> like, you, you, you kind of have to like be a little bit more reflective and patient with these people who are, no matter how full of it it is, they feel like they're under assault from a, you know, like they feel like they're getting stricken by just because someone isn't like them, and they're not smart enough to understand that that they're that the world actually is diverse and doesn't actually agree with them, but they're smart enough to look at a reflection if you can convince them to look at it. Oh, with, with, without a doubt. I, I joke with a lot of friends of mine on Instagram because some of them follow my personal Instagram account. And I'm from Oakland, San Francisco, which is, you know, 
it's it's ground zero for anti-culture and it's probably the most left-wing place in the world maybe portland but it, you know i've been to seattle doesn't even come close New York doesn't even come close in terms of how left-wing uh, Oakland is in particular. Yeah, but Oakland isn't diverse, right? It's just like it's just actually it's... Oakland is is a quarter black, a quarter Hispanic, a quarter Asian, a quarter white. It's it's interesting, but you're interesting. a completely black town by the culture. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, it has a culture to it that isn't as diverse as the people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that well said, well said. Um, but yeah, like they'll 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 follow me on my private personal Instagram and they'll see I'm like dropping red pills and like why are you talking about these talking points from 2020? I'm like, <laughs> to my friends back home, this is all completely new to them. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I posted like a little Rishi Sunak bit, you know, that was you know all the rage back in the fall. <laughs> um, and you know, he's like, I think you miss a teammate, old teammate of mine on the fight team I was on in San Francisco. He's like, I think you misunderstand. These people are British citizens, and I'm like. <laughs> He's Haitian, ethnically, and I said, so you're telling me, like, I could become a Haitian citizen and then, you know, dictate policy for there to be no Haitians in the governing body. And he's just like, well, no. I'm like, well, you know, but I want to think on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yes, that's a good point because the, while well, what the positions were reversed does work on non-white people, but for white people, they just don't give a shit. <laughs> no, no. no white, pro white progressives, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even Malcolm X has gone off on one white liberals, which is somewhat of a talking point in this corner of the world. Like you see, you see like some odd creators who aren't so vocal. It's like, yeah, actually, Malcolm X pretty big, big fan. Um, but if you kind of say that out loud, people are like, what? What do you, what do you, what do you say? Yeah, because um, I mean, yeah, because there, there is a certain cult of the black man in, in, in America that both the right and left wing suffer from. The second a black guy sounds conservative, the right wing wants to like be their slaves to him. And the yeah. second, or the second he's like, you know, the second he he wants to be a leader, the the progressives will will, will give them their vir virgins immediately. Yeah, it's it's very odd. It's 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 very like erratic behavior from both sides. Of the I I call it spiritual fidgeting. Uh, it, there there's like this like fidget that you can you can tell like like they'll say the, the most racist man alive will will want to like be a gay lover to to a base black man. Uh, it's it's a really a it's a spiritual fidgeting that like a lot I don't know what's going on but like there's a fidgeting in there that the second something that agrees with them that that is their enemy shows up they're like we are blood brothers now we will go to war together. <laughs> I mean, ever everyone's itching for like a very straightforward war these days because there are none. Um, yeah. NGOs took the glory out of war. Everything's quasi. Everything is like, wait, why are we here again? And you know, friends of mine who are in special forces have echoed the same sentiments. It's like, oh, okay, so you're telling me I didn't sign the dotted line for good reason? He's like, oh, oh yeah, you know, you save yourself some time. I'm like, great, great. <laughs> uh, it's still depressing, but I'm glad I didn't waste my time and possibly get injected with some things that uh, you know, will ruin my test down the line. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just coming out of a PhD program. I quit because I, I really didn't want to deal with a lot of the nonsense that was going on in academia these days. And I'm not even entirely convinced there will be many schools to work for <laughs> when I would be done. But uh, I'm glad I went. Like it was six months in Europe that was very enjoyable. But I also and, and like I didn't have to pay for it either. But like I was like, dang, if I stay here, I'm going to be like 35 single and have to work in Europe until I'm 40 probably stay single this is an iq shutter i'm getting the hell out yeah i mean it's like some of the opportunities are like a trap you know and it leaves it, it it kind of for the most part it segregates people into two you know classes people who you know don't really commit to anything because they're so terrified of getting thrown in the iq shredder and guys who just went face first into it and hope for the best 
um, there are very few who are like kind of picking their shots accordingly where it's like, all right, this is going to be worth for two years and I'm going to get out and I'm going to, you know, chart a course this way. Hopefully God willing. Um, yeah, I was telling Jay Burden that like I left Silicon Valley. I was like, I, I know, I know I'm going to like be fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like, I've been good. I'm good at this. I signed some high profile clients, but get me the hell out of here. Like, um, I just, I just couldn't do it. And, uh, I worked for bar, I worked in bars instead to be a fighter, which is hilarious. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, basically I think at this point, you know, for the five people who are listening, but you know, this will go to the Spotify audio only podcast where, you know, most of the, most of my audience, you know, listens to me and whatnot, you know, they're getting the gist that, you know, you're not the same dissident, right. Talking point guy, either coming from like academia or coming from the same five talking points, or, you know, in, in our, both of our cases, this kind of, um, you know, I got to get out of the city. I got a homestead. And if I don't, it's just not going to be okay. <laughs> it's so over. Um, why would I ever want to be in a city? I mean, it's, it's all very soft. If I'm being honest, and I think it's a bit, it's a bit ridiculous. Well, it's, um, it is, it is fundamentally like this, you know, if, if you've read Tolkien, Tolkien, all of his characters, all of his main characters come from like the Shire and all of them have to go through this process of like, uh, uh, being, being like <laughs> de-domesticated, if you will. Like, like they, they have to like get their feet wet and like get out of the Shire and, and realize that, that the world isn't the Shire and the Shire very well may burn down. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, one, one of the, one of my biggest problems with the movies is that it doesn't show the scouring of the Shire at the end of the books. Um, yeah. if you're, if you're familiar with it, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because like that 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 is Tolkien robbing these heroes of a of a of a good ending. Like they can't go back again. And now like they always knew they couldn't go back mentally, but now they actually can't go back to the Shire from before from before when they left. It, it's been burned down. Uh, they actually have to put the work in to rebuild it uh, and and to make it something new. Um, you know the the hobbits ultimately do get wiped out, and they ultimately do have to like rebuild their civilization from the ashes. Uh, they couldn't, and had the heroes stayed in the Shire, they probably would have died with everyone else. They probably would never had been anybody. And so, by by going out into the world and getting a little bit toughened up and learning its wisdom and 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 you know denying where it isn't wise, they went back and could ultimately be uh, heroes to the Shire as well as the world. Because you know, you know, in the movie when they come back to without the the scouring of the Shire in the movies, they come back and everyone acts like nothing's ever changed. And and these are just these weird adventurers that who knows what they did they're still farmers back in the shire uh it's actually kind of tragic right they come back from that adventure and they're just farmers again rather than heroes uh but in the books they come back as heroes and prove their worth by saving the shire uh from from war um i i like the book so much more because that and and in many ways it's this like need to run away to the shire the countryside i mean it's good to do that when you're an old man have family and have done your part to build civilizations it's not very great to do that when you're young. Like you know, in in ancient times, uh, you weren't even in in the Roman Republic and Empire. You weren't allowed to do that. You had to serve in the legionaries for twenty years before you had your forty acres and a mule. You you, you didn't start from that. Yeah, it's just it's a decay of the male spirit in general. Like we're not built just like all right, I got my land. I'm just gonna sit here forever. You see twenty year olds acting like that. I'm like, no, you're not. 45 like coming <laughs> yeah, yeah coming off of like multiple tours in iraq and then building a successful business and having some kids like you're just you're just disenfranchised of the fact that you've been in covid lockdown 
and now you're freaked out that you're going to be tossed into a, a bug pod so you're trying to get out and it's just and what do you what do you think is going to happen and the thing is i tell this to people all the time who try to to push that towards me like dude you got to get out to idaho and i'm like no and they're like why i'm like there's no elite level i mean my my you know ambitions are in fighting and in business and they're like there's no elite level like muay thai fighting in fucking idaho and it's just like you can make a gym and i was like okay well I'm, I'm i'm in my 20s man like i'm not in my 40s yeah you can make um, a gym when you have a reputation that people want to go to yeah exactly it's just like oh muay thai in the middle of quarter lane like i don't think so like I, don't get me wrong if you're in those hinterlands uh like serve your people but like if you want to start something new you have to get out of the shire first and earn your worth and then you can come back as a hero and build something like in your older years absolutely and i think so there's there's a, a friend of mine who i'm going to actually have on this podcast post lent um he uh he's he's a startup of blockchain based land ownership which is very interesting <laughs> and i was like so is this going to be like out in the middle of nowhere he's like no i'm not having any of these you know patches of houses and ranches you know anything any with a journey longer than an hour and a half from cities because we have to interact with cities because cities drive culture whether we like it or not historically this is the case um, yeah there, there, there's something to think about that actually because most american cities were established if I, if, I, if I remember correctly from my from my jolly old urban studies uh classes most american cities were established uh three days out from the nearest town beyond that so like every, most towns and cities in america are like separated by a three-day carriage journey we yeah. actually haven't we haven't really developed an infrastructure for what it means to live in like in a technological era with like flight and and train uh the trains have had a bit here longer and have a little bit more an influence on how cities developed after that initial establishment but we haven't really thought about like how does the speed of technology affect like centers and peripherals because uh, those things are all still infrastructure wise built off of the assumption of a horse carriage that isn't used anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, and then you have like very various autistic arguments for high speed rail. Like that, that's been a, it's been a thing lately on the right, like high speed rail, <laughs> or no, like car, you know, society without cars is based, but then like they actually, you actually run the numbers on high speed rail and such of this country. And it's just, it's nonsensical. So. Yeah. The, the high speed rail is for elites. It's not for common people. Or, yeah. if, it's a, <laughs> or if it's a local rail, it's for like middle, middle managers getting from the suburbs. It's, it's not for you based uh 20 year old adventurers that want to like go to the countryside. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't. I don't think that people realize that this doesn't have the same energy as like as a community garden. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, it's there's a hell of a lot more overhead. Uh, there's a hell of a lot more overhead uh, that needs to be dealt with. Um, yeah. But what, sorry, I had a random thought that you hit because one one of the things I noticed in Belgium, you know, Belgium, a train like an hour train gets you from Paris to to Brussels. Right. Um, but one of the things you notice when you ride a train in Europe, if you have like, dang, those rails are. You're going 200 miles per hour, and and the, the the wishing by railroad doesn't look like it's moved an inch. But in America, like a train half that speed, the trains are wibbly wobbling all over the place as you drive by. It's like such a shitty construction. It's like it's not meant to be high speed. Yeah, I mean, we we, we took a we took a swift swift uh, right turn away from uh, from railroads once Henry Henry Ford had to say we haven't really looked back, and I don't yeah. I don't I foresee us. 
if I mean, I know you're 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 an architect, and this is a conversation that I have uh, a lot with a lot of my my friends, my girlfriend, in fact, who was actually you know planning on being an architect once upon a time. Now she's a trad wife in training. But <laughs> um, you know the the career the turning in the turning suburban communities into like old agrarian style villages is very doable. What isn't doable is like making every city in America super walkable. Uh, not yeah. every city is going to be New York or San Francisco. Um, which is fine. I mean, like, you're not going to make Houston as this urban, you know, this sprawling, walkable thing. Pe- pe- people also don't realize the infrastructure has to get built for a massive city like New York or Chicago. Like, the um, in, in global trade network infrastructure and communications, like, because you're trading at, like, microseconds, uh, like, pennies a microsecond, Chicago and New York are okay a distance because you have, like, like a few seconds, uh, microseconds, uh, light speed difference for for trade algorithms but there's a reason why there's a european trade that's not part of the new york stock exchange it's because it's too damn slow to do anything practical at the, at the rapid trade l- level um so you just have to make a new market so like this this is what i mean like like the speed the, the distance between major metropolitan cities is somewhat predetermined by like their infrastructure their technology and and their networks it's like new york is like the financial capital of, of the of of the east coast because it, of these factors, where Chicago is the same thing in the middle of the country because of the same factors. It's difficult to run serious, like, peer-to-peer internet from there to there cheaply uh, and privately for, like, specific, like, corporations and trading companies want, like, privatized Ethernet wire, fiber optic wires between each other for, like, secure secure and rapid communication and trade, and you, you just can't do that across the Appalachian Mountains very well. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, I mean, with, so I guess the other thing, you know, the, the main reason I wanted to have you on, I mean, I, I had, you know, I had you on my list for a little bit now after, you know, the, it's, it's a very, it's a very diverse portfolio that you have in your work. Like it, it it's a yeah. lot of, you know, history autisms in, in root, but, um, you know, the topics very greatly. Um, and you know, as, we, we could just kind of generalize like what it is that you're doing content wise but the the main thing i want to discuss is um your your article on judeo-christian values and how that's a bit of a that term is a bit of a myth it's a bit of a nietzsche fabrication yeah <laughs> yeah, um, yeah how norse pagan didn't really their religion doesn't really come from you know northwest europe uh, as they say and claim with various fight shorts with a thor's hammer on and whatnot i've seen many people <laughs> many people in fighting gyms like that um but I guess first, to get, uh, where I'd want to start is, you know, what what faith do you profess, and how did that possess you to basically uh, go down this path of writing this article? Oh, well, I was born and raised Catholic. Briefly tried out Lutheranism like a decade ago. Uh, Lutheranism is close to my heart because there is a lot of overlap with Catholicism, but that adventure also kind of convinced me that. I'd, I'd rather try to fix Catholicism than be a schismatic. Uh, I do have a lot of respect for orthodoxy too. Like I, I really do respect a lot of those older churches that have been through thick and thin in the fire. Oh, sounds like we lost you. Test, oh. test, 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 test. Uh, we're so bad. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I I didn't notice it cut off. I could hear you saying we can't hear you, um, but like uh, I, I I do believe I'm currently witnessing the the death of Protestantism, uh, which is something to I, I do think it's something to weep about. Um, but many of these 
philosophies have echoes in previous movements and they're they kind of die at the same 500 year mark just about uh people should do more research into the the longevity of Ar arius's heresy and and how that that spread like wildfire but it couldn't really stick uh it's it spread but it didn't stick and then after 500 years it was gone um but yeah I, I do think that the you know the traditions and goals of the Protestants were noble and desirable, but their offspring don't seem to have inherited that will. Um, like for example, are you aware? This I love opening with this question, but are you aware that North Korea is the first Presbyterian country? <laughs> I cannot say that I am. Yeah, the the founder Kim Il Sung, uh, his his father was a, pro, a, a Presbyterian missionary trained in Scotland. Or trained with Scottish missionaries and, and his mother too. They they were very rich on, on Presbyterian theology. So when Kim Il Sung wrote uh Juche and many of the uh political diatribes with North Korea, it's actually infused with Presbyterian like Scottish Presbyterian theology and, and philosophy. Like like the terms the assumption and worldview come from a Presbyterian worldview. So the natural end of Presbyterianism, of like radical Presbyterianism uh and calvinism is in fact north korea that that's what you will end up with uh it's, it's kind of amusing but uh yeah look up the family lineages of like look up the missionaries and their offspring you'll you'll oftentimes find some very fascinating histories and narratives of, of how different people came in and went like there's um there's this other scottish presbyterian guy who who inhabited the caribbean uh, and his children went on to like live in like uh, British India and, and Jamaica and all kinds of random parts of the empire. And, and they all kind of like became really like bloody geniuses in, in their field. Like it's clearly it was an inheritance of intelligence, but within like three or four generations, they were all like godless Dorotus and like just as intelligent, but godless because they didn't have the, I guess the apostolic faith. They had a, a notion of Christianity, but they didn't have the apostolic inheritance. Uh, the faith once deposited to you. Um, so anyway, that, that's the background of, of of where I was coming from, and I I grew up in you know I, I mentioned that I grew up in a diverse area in Manhattan. These things included a number of people from the Middle East and 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 uh, European countries that gave me a certain broader perspective of Christianity. Um, so I was kind of aware that a lot of the the pagan assumptions of Christianity weren't really historical. I didn't know where they came from, and I I kind of wanted to figure out, and I think. I found that they mostly come from Nietzsche. There may be someone I didn't find, but uh, even Nietzsche's one of Nietzsche's early books, uh, the Antichrist, Der Antichrist. This seems to be derived from a French Catholic text called uh, Le Antichrist. Uh, something I can't speak French, but um, I can read it. Uh, and that book was basically trying to justify the French Revolution from a Catholic perspective, and, and this appears to have pissed Nietzsche off because. He was aware this is bullshit. Uh, to, to his credit, Nietzsche was very aware of he. he Nietzsche had a great bullshit censor, but he didn't have a great uh, like response to it. Really, uh, he also didn't have a very good bullshit censor with himself. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he had he was going insane, but uh, it, it is it. Uh, one of the best uh, before I wrote this article, I was kind of researching like the pagan perspectives of Nietzsche to try and make that connection and. In, in that journey, I kind of came across John Michael Greer, who I think I've heard of him in the past, but he, he developed the concept of catabolic collapse. He's a, he's a pagan, and he his biggest criticism of Nietzsche was basically that, like, 
the Ubermensch can be understood as, as a god of progress, and there's an assumption that progress never ends, like God never ends. But if progress does end, if there is a end to progress, like if we find out, hey, there's really not much more to learn from the scientific or sociological world, uh, then that god can no longer deliver its name. It, it can no longer progress. It, it's ended. It, it too will die. And so he had, John Michael Greer had this quote that I found, uh, you know, come to the come to God's grave and you'll find the grave diggers burying Nietzsche, uh, burying uh, progress there, which is like a great line. I, I've rephrased it as, you know, come to the grave Nietzsche dug for God and you'll find progress buried there. Uh, I prefer my rephrasing of his quote because it's a little bit more direct, but um, in my searching for the pagan origins for, for Christian perspectives, I did find that there are some pagans that take issue with Nietzscheanism and, and his perspective. But I would argue now that most of pagan theology does appear to be derived from some weird mix of Nietzschean and Baptist think theology, uh, Baptist in the sense of individuality, individual choice, free will, and stuff like that. Um, if you actually read a lot of the ancient classics and pagans, they, they're, they're not really aligned with neo-pagan thought. Um, and if you press them on the issue, you'll find that, that a lot of times pagans will admit that like, yeah, they take the name and idea of the uh, ideals of the gods, but they don't really take much light on the stories of the gods. Um, to which end, I then have to ask, like, well, well, I mean, is your god just a, a a name skin suit from your language onto a fundamental force that can be found anywhere? You've kind of argued your way out of an ethnic god. Like a, a lot of these people are, they don't like the idea of a foreign god, like like Jesus from the Middle East, but like. I mean, you're basically doing the same thing in the sense of like taking this fundamental force like we found anywhere in the universe uh, and just giving it a, like an Anglo-Saxon or, or Germanic name. Like, you're not really finding a, a god native to your people. You're finding a, a fundamental force of the universe and giving it a name. Um, or sometimes you'll have, um, like I found, like in my article, I, I kind of did a history autism into the origin of Thor, of Thor and found that it's probably a Middle Eastern deity too. Um Although I'll always add the prefix, the people that were worshiping Thor in the Middle East were also Indo-European. Uh, I will, I will, I will not insult the Indo-Europeans, uh, the the neo-pagans by saying it's it's entirely foreign. It was just the Indo-Europeans that worship Thor in the Middle East were Indo-European. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a rant there. Sorry for going on a little bit of a long tangent. Oh no, fair play. Um, yeah, I, I came across some, like a really interesting piece of information. Actually, I think no, I was <laughs> I was on the the Bagby stream with you at the tail end there. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I said I came across a Hitler quote. Sorry, a mustache man, a mid-century German. I know that's the you know the safe lingo to call it, but um, <laughs> basically stating that the Kurds and the Berbers were like the lost uh, Aryans, like lost Germans, which. Um, Kind of uh, has some kind of uh, alignment with what you're just stating. But yeah, I mean, even if you read the Prozetta, I performed, you know, a bunch of excerpts in the Prozetta as my first, you know, movement assessment project in drama school back in England. And, you know, the Prozetta makes it pretty clear that, you know, their origins come from Troy. Like the claim is yeah, that yeah. These, are the, these are the Trojans who fled uh, Asia Minor after, you know, the, the successful um, Greek invasion. Um, so, even in that, so it's, it's a lot of these neo pagans. They kind of they they will compare their you know fjords and mountains and meadows like this is our ancestral land and this is where our faith has come from, um, and we reject the Jewish Christ um, from the desert. And 
you know, before we get into those points in particular, because those are like two of, I'd say probably the three main points you're making um, in, in this article you wrote in Substack that I'll keep in the show notes, but what possessed you to write this article? What kind of, um, like, what what about the term Judeo-Christian just didn't sit right with you and have you go down this rabbit hole and express this? Yeah, I mean, I, I will credit the Lutherans for really, uh, 10 years ago, the, the LCMS was a very good champion against this. Nowadays, it's kind of cringe. Uh, the church has become very cringe, but there were a lot of writers questioning this term. Um, I'll, I'll say like, Pirate Christian Radio was a, was a, was a big one that reported about this a lot. These are things like ten years ago. Um, most of these, you know, pseudo boomers have have gradually denounced their own earlier works. But the work they're the writing against Judeo Christianity and and the idea of a Judeo Christian value uh, were pretty good. A lot of them kind of come to the same conclusion that the term Judeo Christian originates from the nineteenth century, where there was a move. To, to there was a move in the Jewish world to have a Zionism movement, and it seems that a lot of them realized they could never accomplish this without the Christian empires allowing it. So there was a move amongst many Zionist scholars to like befriend different empires and try to like finagle out the land of Palestine to to, re, to reborn Israel. Um, and then this is what happened: the Zionists picked and choose their forces. They eventually realized the British were going to be the best bet. And so they got the, the British promise for an Israel state after World War II. Um, in between 1945 and like the late 1800s, this is basically the development of Zionism from what was originally, you know, originally Jews and Christians did not go along. I think anybody even remotely aware of medieval history is aware of things like the Inquisition. There, there was no bedfellows between the two religions. Uh, they did not like each other. They did not consider each other the same religion. And if you read enough of them, may have doubted there was even a common origin. Um, there, there are significant reasons to to question if the Judaism that is around today is the same Judaism that Jesus Christ was was a part of. There's some evidence that says that it was probably a medieval reinvention by Christians returning to Judaism, not actually originating from Judaism itself. <laughs> um, and there were insults for these people, and they called them Judeo-Christians. They like they were Christians attempting to go back to Judaism. And over time, with the Zionists in the 1800s, this term was flipped on its head to mean, uh, oh, the common values between Jewish Judaism and Christianity. Uh, what values exactly? I don't know. Like, you know, it's, it's not like we both have the Ten Commandments, but it's not like the we both follow it the same way anyway. Um, but I guess what possessed me was this, like, as uh, you know, neo-paganism has been growing in America. I, I'm actually quite convinced neo-paganism, not atheism, will be the next big religious movement in America. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. Um, but I wanted to like put my two cents out there to like try and counter it before it grew. Um, I, I do feel like in the next 40 years, you're going to see a, a rapid growth of paganism because it offers more than atheism and it doesn't have the baggage of Christianity in the modern era. So like it's just the natural choice of what would grow in that void. Um, and I kind of want to put my two cents into that void before it may off the hope that maybe it might convince some people to reevaluate their worldview. Maybe what they were taught by people is not so true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of, um, in terms of Judaism versus you know, Judaism now versus Judaism, then the, the one thing where I think they may have a leg to stand on in this point of like quote unquote Judeo Christian values is that, Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it's the fulfillment of Isaiah, the fulfillment of Elijah, so on and so forth. So the liturgical tradition that, you know, you and I share pretty closely being Catholic and Orthodox, obviously with some variants, 
um, you know, that originally comes from Judaism. That part is true. But what creates the Judaism we see today, you know, Talmudic, you know, rabbinic Judaism is the rejection of, of Christ, like a rejection of Christ fulfilling every single one of these both. Uh, yeah. And, and, Messiah. And, and we can be a little bit more specific. Like in, in before the show I was mentioning, I'm reading Virgil, the poet of Rome, because he had read Isaiah and, and a few Magi uh, writings. Um, I, I'm fairly convinced Virgil was aware of the prophecy of Christ. Uh, and he wrote, he seems to have wrote about it in his, uh, I think it's the fourth Echologue. Uh, let me make sure I'm reading it right. Virgil. Yeah, Echologue four, in which he describes um, the Christ child uh, from the Roman perspective, like years before Jesus was born. Because um, he had read Isaiah, he had fallen in love with Isaiah's prophecies, and he believed that this child to be born would be also the child that would bring peace to the Roman Empire because at that time it was in the midst of many civil wars. Um, there will be some people that try to argue he's talking about Augustus, but he wrote it before Augustus took power. When he wrote, Augustus was just the youngest member of the triumvirate, and even Augustus didn't really seem to have related to himself. Um, there are some people that, that will then speculate that the Christ child was going to be one of the heirs of Augustus, but uh, it became very apparent that folks like Nero and other progeny of of that lineage were, were nothing of the sort of that of that comparison um i think nero famously might have thought himself to be what the the poet was right I, I, sorry i skipped ahead in those time periods in in the classical western world uh poets were also prophets many of the poets of 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 the republican empire era they wrote prophecies based off of the traditions that they were familiar with and some of their prophecies they do speak of a Christ child. They do speak of a promised child from the East that would, that would come and save them. Uh, I believe the terms that Virgil used would, was something along the lines of like once more, like another war, another Troy, another Achilles will come like, like, like a repeating of history almost uh, these like heroic figures from the East. Um, I know, I'm also aware because I, I mentioned like I, I grew up around a few people from the Middle East and one of them was Syrian and he spoke Aramaic and he and he um he was from a Chaldean background and the Chaldeans were the 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 nation that birthed the the Magi the Magi are famously the pagan they are pagan they were pagan priests that show up at the birth of Christ and there's always this question in the Christian world where did these pagan priests come from how do they know about Jesus and and how why were they there like well, what are these pagans doing at the birth of Christ uh, if you read your Bible, uh, Daniel, the prophet and and uh, uh, dreamer, was put in charge of the of the Magi during the Babylonian and Persian empires. He, he was explicitly put in charge of the wise men of 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 their nation, um, and he seems to have. If you read Daniel a certain way, he does get the year of Christ's arrival to the year, and so the the logic is: well, if Daniel's predicting Christ in the Old Testament to the year. And the Magi show up, he probably told the Magi this prophecy. If you do a little bit more deep diving, you can find in the star charts of that era. Uh, this is this is like a wild autism. I'll, I'll eventually write something on, on Substack about this if I haven't already. Um, but you can find that there's a prophecy uh, that does come true. It comes true somewhere in like the year, somewhere between negative, somewhere between 4 BC and 2 AD. I forget when it happened. Uh, when Jesus, basically when Jesus was born, uh, the the planet Jupiter enters retrograde in Virgo and stays in Virgo for nine months and is witnessed by Venus, uh, Saturn, and 
and Mars and, and other planets. And if you read, if you understand what these symbols mean, um, Jupiter being in Virgo for nine months means the king born of a virgin. Like the, the, the king is in the womb for nine months and is born. Uh, Jupiter is the king. Uh, then it heads to either Libra or I forget what the signs are for, for the scales of judgment, but on the way to the scales of judgment, like the king born of a virgin will be judged and he heads by serpent. So he's slaying the serpent. It's the proto evangelum written in the heavens. Um, and this star sign, you know, the, star, the the king Jupiter is witnessed by Mars, which is typically associated with with the archangel Michael and and Mercury, who is I think the archangel Gabriel. I can't remember. And Saturn is typically Satan. Uh, the the name is actually derived from it. You may be familiar within the classical mythology. Saturn is famously in rings and chains, as it literally is as a planet. It's wild. I can tell you possibly some reasons why the Romans might have known that Saturn had rings, but that's for another time. Uh, and so the birth of Christ is witnessed by the, you know, the archangels of heaven, like M Michael, Gabriel, Satan, and, and, and the others, uh, the main planets. Um, and so this prophecy in the heavens, uh, which is known to by most astro astrological cultures, would have been known by the Magi, and them knowing this sign would have brought them to the Christ child when it was born. Likewise, Virgil writing prophecies and poems relating the stars divine predicting this Christ child uh, from a pagan Roman perspective. Again, he's not a Jew. He's out in Rome writing from copies of Isaiah he's found from the recent conquests in Palestine and, and Alexandria. Um, he would have known uh, when Christ would have been born through the Magi stories because uh, Virgil studied astrology and the Magi when he was young. Um, it's This is written. Uh, Fun fact, in, in his prophecies in the fourth eclogue, he he laments the years needed to see the birth of this child, and he knows he's not going to live long enough to see it. He laments not he laments being born like a few years off from living to see that that Christ child born. And he's writing this 30 years before Jesus is born. And uh, long story short, uh this does indicate that the first followers or anticipation, like those anticipating the Christ child. They weren't even Jews. They were Romans. They were Greeks. They were Alexandrians. These are people that study the stars and signs passed down through generations. So the first, the first people to come to Christ and bow to him were pagans. They were, they were foreigners. They weren't Jews. The first Christians weren't Jews. Um, even if you want to say Jesus was the first Christian or the or the last Jew, depending on who you ask, um, there's a like it's kind of tragic the way pagans hate Christ now because hey, your ancestors were the first ones to acknowledge him, not the Jews. So how can you call it a Jewish religion if the first people that followed him were, were these pagans from uh, Persia and, and Rome? It's, it's wild to me. Sorry, that was a long rant, but those are some things to think about. <laughs> no, certainly. I think, um, yeah, a lot of people who, you know, I bumped into various Kabbalists who talk about, well, Jesus was a Jew, and then they say the first Christian. Well, I mean, if, if you profess a Christian faith, you're, you're considered the son of God. That probably takes precedent above, yeah, <laughs> above, yeah, yeah. above all the rest. But, um yeah, I mean, it, there's there's a comment in the uh, in the live chat saying we're at the Wiseman Zoroastrian. I think at least one of them was, but I'm looking for Zoroastrian. I have a wild theory that I really don't bring up often that Daniel was Zoroaster because his Babylonian name is Bel Zoroaster, and that's close enough to Zoroaster that I'd, I'd argue it might be it. Um, Zoroaster's name, his full name was Ash Ashtar Zoroaster, I think. I forget the what. Ahara Mazda is that the name of the Zoroastrian god? Correct. Yeah. Uh, I think is I think Zoroaster's name was uh, something like Ahara Zaraster. And so if you 
interpret the Zoroaster part of his name as as like a you know the people back then had multiple names because different people knew them by different tongues. So Ahara would be the god dedicated that the, that the name is dedicated to, and then Zoroaster would be the um the the descriptor of how he's honoring that god. Then Ahara Zoroaster is equivalent to Beltu Beltu. Sturaster, I think it's something like with a, there's a th in there somewhere. I think I forget. It's not quite the same. There's no z, but Beltu is a god. Ashra is a god, and you could argue that it's basically the same name honoring the same god under a different language. So uh, my big conspiracy theory is that Daniel and Zoroaster are the same person, and Zoroastrianism is just, just a corruption of Daniel's prophecies. Um, Daniel famously refused to go back to Israel. He may very well have been one of the first Essenes because he rejected Israel. Um, he chose to stay in the Middle East and serve the kings of Persia for the rest of his life. He, he Even when the temple was getting rebuilt and the Jews were returning to Palestine, he no longer considered himself a member of that society. He, he chose to stay in, in, in Persia and Babylon and to be... Uh, to, to teach the priests of Zoroaster, basically. And if you do, if you if you go digger in this rabbit hole, um, in the West, there's this assumption that Zoroaster comes from like 1500 BC or something. And if you look into that, that's that's kind of made up nonsense from like 19th century pseudoscience. The Iranians themselves say that Zoroaster was born sometime in the 500s uh, BC uh, and and lived in that era. And if you look in the archaeological record, there's no evidence of Zoroaster before the the 500s BC. There is one single piece of art dedicated to a Hora Mazda from like 1500 BC, but there's no mention of Zoroaster. And there's, there's plenty of instances where a God is known about before the prophet that makes him more publicly known. Um, so I, I don't really interpret the single image. I don't even know if there's a name to it, but the iconography looks like a Harazara on like a rock wall from like 1500 BC. That's scant evidence. You're not mentioning Zoroaster. I don't know if you're even mentioning the name of the God. It's just assumed because the iconography is similar. Um, it seems that Zoroaster probably lived in the 500s BC, which is the same era that Daniel lived. And so if you read when Daniel's made in charge of the wise men of Babylon, uh, wise men being Magi, well, you can't have two high priests. Either, either Zoroaster and Daniel are sharing the position of high priest, or they are in fact the same person. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, so to, to button some button some things up before we kind of carry on. Sorry, um, I go on long rants. You got to cut me off. <laughs> oh no, I mean, I, I I don't really mind that. You know, there's a famous line in this like you know in this podcast. People always apologize for being long winded. I'm like, no, that's fine. Like that's I actually prefer it that way. Um, and I have enough of attention span that I can kind of like respond to each little bit. So as far as um as far as your bits about uh you know, pagans being the first Christians, it does, it does kind of add more light to um, the centurion, you know, coming to Christ in humility. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it struck me as more than just, you know, when, when reading that, it struck me as more than just hearing about the miracles of Christ it, more so as a, a centurion to be a well-read person, um, especially in that area, especially if he's excavating, you know, <laughs> helping. Yeah. Helping yeah. He's teachers. trusted. He's trusted. He's in the elite. He knows the governor. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it's uh, in terms of a lot, a lot of people, you know, you see the you see the the fedora tipping person like, you know, Schroeder's cat. You know, have you ever heard of the cave, bro? Yeah, I actually heard uh, you know, most of Christianity was taken from Plato. It's like, <laughs> OK, man. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it kind of sheds more light upon a lot of Gentiles response to the coming of Christ. Um, and, 
it, it does run parallel to all the prophecies um, in the Abrahamic tradition that Christ fulfilled. Um, what's really curious to me, though, and I've only read, and this is also running in tandem with what a lot of people would call like the extra biblical books, right? The books that, you know, are of this era, but not, not necessarily added to biblical canon since the Ethiopian and Eritrean, you know, Orthodox churches. Yeah. So not even, you know, not even Eastern Orthodox, but Oriental Orthodox churches calling this canon, like, you know, the most famous one's the book of Enoch. But a lot of people ask the question, why does it matter? Um, and it's not necessarily that it matters or not. Um, it's just, it's more details and scope surrounding the story. A lot of friends of mine, particularly this guy called the Saxon Cross, um, he's pretty hellbent on, you know, lining up stories of mythology with stories of the Bible. And he's kind of, he has a bunch of working theories that, you know, a lot of these people called Thor who were slaying demons are actually angels. So that's, that's a bunch of, a bunch of theories in terms of, you know, mapping out the world you know, to yeah. connect the yeah. dots with the with, with biblical stories. It's not only is it fun, but I think it it puts a lot of people who, you know, it, this this maybe maybe not won't have as much of an extreme view as like neo paganism, but maybe they're wary of Christianity for the sake of cultural veneration. Um, they're seeing you know the European heritage die, um, and they're seeing a lot of these myths and legends be called you know satanic by the evangelical traditions that are thankfully fading now. Um, yeah, 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 and 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 this is tragic because there's so much overlap between them. Like, like if you read the original writers of of a lot of like you know, there are a lot of writers deba debating between pagans and Christians in the in the first and second and third centuries. Um, most famously, Justin Martyr, who by far was the like, yeah, the demons people uh, kind of side of the argument. Um, but there's also an argument that these are just half remembered. Uh, stories of, of like the sons of Noah, which I, I much prefer this view because I mean, for one, a lot of the names of these gods aligns with the names of Noah's sons, <laughs> like uh, that Des Petar, uh, not, not Des Petar, um, Dios Petar is, is one letter short of Yapetar, like the, the son of Noah. Um, so it's like, okay, so like through accenting because like languages changed every century in those, in those years. Um, Dies Petar isn't that far off from Ye Petar, uh, the son of Noah, and and it's also not that far off from uh, I, I Petar, uh, the, the the Titan in Greek mythology. Furthermore, their, their children like um, Ion, the uh, famously the the ancestor of the Ionians, that's that's spelt the same way as the Yavanites, the the, the grandson of Noah. Um, you know, you could go down and down and down the list, and the more that linguists and archaeologists connect the dots in like the Indo-European pie migration, the more it starts to align with biblical claims of where the Noah's Ark was and where the Jepetic peoples migrated from. It's like, it's not like these research lineages are disproving the Bible. They're actually proving them <laughs> like, huh, all these Northern European, all these like Indo-European people originate from the steppes by the Caucasian mountains. Hey, isn't that where Noah's Ark landed? <laughs> Uh, you might have heard of the African origin theory, my friend. Uh, let me yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, nail nail paint emoji. Uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think the more work that's done to align these things, the healthier that you know European society and its extension, you know, countries across uh, overseas, yeah, uh, will get in terms of their you know, collective psyche and their embrace of Christianity as part of its tradition and canon and not something separate. 
Um, I may be somewhat misusing that, and I'm sure Paul Fahrenheit would hear it. (laughs) Paul Fahrenheit is one of the people that encouraged me to dive deeper into these topics because he was very interested in the the origins and stories of like the Aryan people. I haven't made a linguistic link from the Aryans to the Japetic people, but I'm I'm starting to possibly uncover one. Um, But like I, I I do think that like you know in, in the throughout the first through fifth centuries a lot of Christian poets wrote poems and mythologies and songs for the origin of their people that like bridged these gaps because they, the, a lot of these people were in between cultures and knew multiple languages and 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 could see how the words uh, translated across borders. Uh, our people nowadays unfortunately are more monolinguistic and less able to see that, so we. You kind of part of building an aristocracy is, is being able to speak to like anyone in Europe or the Middle East and, and have like that knowledge basis in your head to speak to anyone. Like you should really know, like everybody in these circles should really know French, Spanish, Italian, like Arabic, uh, Greek and Latin. Like the, these are things that your father, your grandfathers all knew, like the, your great grandfathers all knew when, when they came here to colonize this land, they could speak all these languages because it was a standard in education. And, and that's kind of been lost now, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just, it's just not seen as necessary because, you know, this is this is just, you know, we're, we have an ocean in between us. We're an Anglo-founded country with a bunch of immigrants who are expected to, you know, adopt the, you know, quote-unquote American culture, which is really just an extension offshoot of being an Anglo. So there's it's not really as necessary as in Europe. But even in Europe, it's dying down probably because of the quote-unquote gay's influence on... Yeah, unfortunately. Every, everybody just speaks English in Europe now. It's really sad. Yeah, that's depressing. I want. I mean, eh, France will probably still be like, no, nah, no, nah. yeah, which is good. I, I think that I think their shitty attitude is actually, you know, coming out on top um, in terms of in terms of you know preserving their linguistic tradition. Um, yeah, uh, well, France is an exception because to be French, you must know French. You can't be French and be illiterate about French. It's it's a rare it's a rare exception, and I think we could learn a thing or two about like, well, you can't be American if you don't speak American or English. Right. Um, uh, There's a, I mean, you know, politically speaking, France is kind of like our, our father and and England, our mother. And to some degree, we've kind of cursed our, our father, our father and, and embraced fully our mother. and, And it shows up in our matriarchy, matriarchal culture. I think if we, Americans could learn a lot by how French, do <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the opposite take that i've heard because typically argue i mean in terms of literature you know i've talked about how the french or you know the english are not capable of french literature because they don't go through the the sort of mental episodes throughout the day like these are things <laughs> that most anglos would just ignore like angles be like right i don't know what that's about so and then just carry on like literally keep calm and carry on yeah. Whereas, you know, a Parisian will go through an existential crisis three times a day. They've written about it. It's flourishing, you know, and just Anglos are not capable of this. And, <laughs> I think some, something that's similar is, is Russia in the sense like no one, no one has really been through that kind of anguish. So they couldn't give birth to something like Solzhenitsyn or Ivan Bruno yeah, yeah. or um, uh, Dostoevsky and, and whatnot. But um, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, you and I are both prone to tangents. Um, but I think what's um, what's interesting at the the work you did in this article um, is kind of cornering a lot of misunderstandings, misnomers, and just general deceptions um, 
that point towards Christianity and the origins of the West and how deep those roots go. Those aren't just things because a lot of people see these roots as just, just going back to the conversion of Kings, you know, the first really being Constantine um, and then various Slavic Kings and whatnot. But, and you've highlighted too, with like the astrological background and that does kind of tie in with the extra biblicals of the book of Enoch, because you see the way that it's worded. Um, the book of Enoch, the fallen angels don't teach the, you know, the, the people of the earth lies. They teach them, um, you know, astrology, numerology, all these practices that humanity, quote unquote, wasn't ready for. That's the direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, there's a lot of interest. I love Enoch. I, actually, I'm, I'm I'm glad that at least one apostolic church has it as canon because it's it's like the Ethiopians love it, too. But it's, it, it really is quite a, a quite a fascinating book. Uh, it just requires a certain level of biblical knowledge to understand. <laughs> Absolutely, like if, if if you go if you go face first into the book of Enoch, like a lot of people try, um, you know, it gets it gets a bit schizo in terms of like yeah, you, you, you end up you end up with a uh, black Israeli movement really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, not to go on another tangent, but because like Enoch does have a heavy basis of like the origin of races, and uh, you know, basically everyone in Enoch is dark until Noah, and Noah's the first white guy. Uh, and and so a lot of black Hebrew folk will will interpret this as the uh, oh that's, that's where all the bad things happen even though biblically speaking Noah is like one of the purest prophets out there. Um, yeah. Anyway, slight tangent. <laughs> yeah, the no, fair play. Um, in terms of you know a couple of the eye openers that I, I'd love for you to elaborate further on is you know I, I titled this episode Old Covenants not Old Covenant singular but Old Covenants plural. Uh, because the big eye-openers were um, the origins of the Christian tradition in the Essenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's actually something that my mother uh, kind of pointed out to me um, once upon a time. So the, the two two main things I wanted to discuss were that and um, the other agreements, the other covenants that were made with other people in the Middle East aside from the Hebrews and how you, how you came to this knowledge and how these, you know, puzzle pieces sort of came together for you. I think the first clue... There are two clues in the Old Testament that God did not only deal with the Jews or only make covenants with the Jews. Uh, the first of these is um, when when Abraham has his first kid, Ishmael, uh, before before Sarah gets pregnant. Um, you know, the uh, Hagar, the, the mother, she she flees from from the family uh, and God comes to her and and promise makes a covenant. So the one of the first covenants God's ma- God makes isn't even with the 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 uh the line of 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 Israel it's with the line of Ishmael, um and God promises Ishmael uh, through Hagar like it promises Hagar, um like I'll make you don't worry about Abraham and Sarah um I'm gonna make your children a great nation he doesn't say a plentiful nation like with the Jews like the Jews are are plentiful he says that the the sons of of Ishmael will be uh powerful and they'll also be quite violent people <laughs> like like they'll stick up for themselves but it's also going to cause a lot of infighting um you know famously uh, the people of arabia trace their ancestry through ishmael so like pretty much everyone who's arabic and speaks arabic is, is considered like the son of ishmael um and the muslims will will latch on this covenant uh which they view as like justification for their their actions um, now, mind you, at no point in this covenant does God promise them spiritual salvation. Like he does, this covenant is not a, one of promising them heaven; it's actually promising them worldly power. 
Uh, and who can deny the worldly power of the middle of, of the Muslim people? They, they have much worldly power. They, they, they bomb where they please. They build where they please. They do whatever they want. They are very, they war with each other. Uh, the, the prophecy, the, 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 the covenant and prophecy which God gave to Hagar, as far as I'm concerned, has been proven by history. Um, these are very warlike, infighting people, and they respect strength and honor. And if you give them that, they'll give you that. Um, anyway, though, like that, that's one of the first things that, that hinted to me that God was making more than just the covenant with Abraham. Um, there's this, there's this covenant, uh, which if you look into it in the Hebrew, it's fascinating because it's one of the rare places where God reveals his name. Uh, later on, when he's talking to Moses, God admits he never revealed his, his name Yahweh or, or as the Aramaic say Yahweh. I prefer that, that, that more Middle Eastern sounding way. Uh, he, God, God never reveals his name Yahweh to, uh, to Abraham, Isaac, or, J or Jacob. Uh, sorry, or, or uh, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He never revealed uh, his name Yahweh to them. Instead, he, he, he was known to them, he says, as uh, El Shaddai, which means the God from, uh, it literally means the God from Shaddai, which is a rural town in like Anatolia somewhere. Uh, so, I mean, he's presenting himself to the, to, um, to the Jews as, as a God, further north with the Indo-Europeans, which is kind of interesting. There's another tangent there you can go on if you want. Like God presents himself to the Jews as the gods of the northern Indo-Europeans. So God presents himself not as the God of the Jews at first, but as the gods of the northern people. And the reason for that is because the northern Indo-European people were originally the most faithful to him. In Genesis, the people that actually obey God's command to fill the earth and, and, and go out throughout the world are the sons of Japheth, specifically the lineage of Yavan. They actually go out and follow the orders, whereas everyone else kind of lies or cheats or, or builds the tower of babylon and doesn't follow god's order anyway that's another tangent um so god reveals himself to abraham isaac and and jacob as the god of shaddai el shaddai um a different like like an alias basically el is famously a a it's basically a pagan god in in the uh palestinian uh lineage um so god uses an alias to speak to abraham isaac and and jacob not yahweh not not yahweh as he revealed himself to Moses. Um, but in that, there's a bit of a reveal that God does use uh, aliases. He, he has multiple names that he uses for different people. And he'll choose what name to reveal himself to, depending on what he wants that people. So Moses is privileged to know the true name of, of God as Yahweh. Um, and the only other person who knows that is uh, Hagar, uh, who, who's, who's the name is revealed to her when God makes the covenant, which these are two very interesting things. It means that God makes covenants with other peoples, uh, not necessarily Jews, that God often presents himself as a foreign God uh, anyway. Uh, well, in the case of the Jews, he presents himself as the God of the Indo-European faithful up in Anatolia. Uh, do a little exercise sometime to figure out where Shaddai is. It's it's further north up the Euphrates River. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting that God chooses to identify himself as this foreign God to the Jews. Uh, so he he doesn't even present himself as the god of the Jews. He presents himself as the god of Anatolia, as the, from the town of El Sh of Shaddai, um, which later on becomes associated with the god of peace because Shaddai was a peaceful town. Uh, sorry, another long tangent, but um, this this fact indicates that there's more than one covenant. And if you start digging deeper, you'll find that um, you know Noah, as the prophet and king after the flood, relays to his children uh, promises and curses. So to to Ham, he famously curses his son Canaan to be a slave, um, and to 
at first he says a slave to Shem, which is the ancestor of the Jews, and then later on uh, a slave to Japheth, which is the ancestor of the Europeans. Um, to the Europeans, he says, um, you know, you'll get territory and dominion over your brothers as long as you go to the tents of Shem, which is an idiom. It's it's a it's a way of saying as to visit someone's tent is to bow to their tent gods. So like it's a, a greeting where you come to the tent of someone and and you respect their gods at the at the front entrance. And so when when God says, oh, well, when Noah says to Jepeth, um, so long as you visit the, the the tents of Shem, you will have worldly dominion. Um, in Genesis nine or ten, I forget which, because I'm sleepy and sick. <laughs> uh, this is basically a, a covenant that says, as long as you go to church, you'll have world dominion. And I think history testifies to the fact that as long as Europeans have gone to church, they have ruled the world. <laughs> um, and there's also inverses to these. So you know, the curse to Ham and and his son Canaan that you'll be slaves. Uh, there's an inverse to that. Obey your father, and you will have peace and live well and free. Uh, and likewise, the the offspring of Ham, uh, those are primarily the Africans and the Asians. They have a heavy emphasis on the fact that you have to obey your father or your civilization is going to collapse. And throughout both of these people's histories, whenever their sons have disobeyed their fathers, their societies have collapsed. Um, either the, either the, the heavenly mandate in Asia or just the tribal patriarch in Africa. Uh, these cultures are prone to degenerate into tyrannical matriarchies whenever they violate Noah's order. History, again, testifies to this thing. Likewise, for the sons of Japheth, if they don't go to church, they are cursed to be destroyed, like like just dust, nothing. Uh, and, and likewise, throughout history, whenever the Europeans have cursed God and gone away from him, they've, they've experienced devastations and destructions and the, ruler, the ruling of foreign peoples over them. Um, and whenever they've come back to, in repentance, they've been given world dominion once again. Uh, there are specifics that people can bring up about uh, what about this, what about that, exceptions about that. I'm talking about generalities throughout history. Uh, essentially, once the Europeans embraced Christ, they were pretty much destined to rule the world. And now that they've walked away from Christ, they're pretty much destined to lose the world dominion. Um, these, Whenever God gives a curse or a blessing, there, there's always an inverse to it. It's kind of like a coin flip. Um, where, not coin flip. Not, 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 it's kind of like a... Um, uh, you know, obey this covenant, hear your blessings, disobey this covenant, hear your curses, pick and pick or choose. Um, so these order, these covenants to the peoples of, of the world are generally called the covenant of Noah, which the rabbis talk about as like a, you know, it's a, it's an easier covenant. You don't have to chop a part of your dick off. You just have to be faithful to the seven laws of, of Noah, which, uh, you can look up on your own time. I'm too tired to look at it right now, but these seven laws of Noah, basically this, it kind of rhymes with the Ten Commandments, and the seventh law of Noah is establish governments to ensure these things are followed. Uh, and so that there is a, a covenant for mankind. Uh, you need to make government to establish order, or otherwise you're going to fall to the curses of these covenants. I mean, that's a long tangent, but these are several of the covenants and and prophecies throughout the Old Testament that are completely independent of the Jewish people. They have nothing to do with the Jewish people. They are promises to Africans and Asians and Indo-Europeans. That, that was actually where I wanted to go further. That's that's actually perfect. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Japheth and Shem. What about the third son? Was there, um, you know, in the in, in the Americas, any? I'm curious. This is something I'm completely unfamiliar with. I think it's Mormon belief. Um, I mean, Noah probably had other sons, and I, if 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 you need to think that something happened in America to feel comfortable, it, it's not really relevant. 
I, I don't. I'm not going to follow this. No, I'm just wondering. Like, <laughs> no, no, not, not not you. Like, like whoever asked that. I mean, but um, like, you know, as far as we can tell, Native Americans primarily come from Asia. There's a little bit of uh. Oh, he's lost again. Hopefully, you can hear me again. admixture from uh there's a number of admixtures in in the native americans that oh and he's gone test test sorry i got cut off oh no um, worries uh, i can hear you now well um, there are a number of admixtures in native american cultures from like like it's primarily siberian uh, there's a little bit of Polynesian admixture, a little bit of Anatolian admixture, possibly a little bit of Celtic mixture. And if you read the Icelandic sagas, there's a little bit of Viking mixture in there too. Yeah, that was my, my overall understanding. I was curious because I've met people who were not Mormon who, you know, have some claims of you know, different peoples. Coming the, uh, yeah, I, I, I have read a few books that there's this book by a Lutheran pastor in like the 1750s where he's documenting his his arrival to the new world and, and exploring how Christianity is, is uh, degenerating in the colonies. <laughs> it's like one of the first black pill posts of America um, at 1750 before the country's even, even established. Uh, but he mentions coming to ruins in Pennsylvania um, uh, where, where he found Hebrew inscriptions uh, on, on a doorpost uh, and it seemed to be older than the colony. Uh, it, and he said that the colonists were using the, um, the stones of these buildings for for their foundations, so the ruins weren't going to last. They were they were being mined for, for 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 home foundations, and this is a common practice in the colonies. Where it happened in South America too, where the Native American buildings are deconstructed and rebuilt as the foundation stones for colonial housing. Um, so who knows? There may have been a crash ship of Jews in Pennsylvania at some point in history. It, it is interesting. It is documenting a Lutheran pastor visited visited Pennsylvania in, in the 1750s. And he found the ruins of a of a of a Jewish house. It's and, and the interesting thing that the Jewish characters that he read. Uh, one of the reasons why I doubt this is because how why is a German guy knowing Hebrew? Because uh, Hebrew had been mostly extinct at this time in history. So there's a little bit of doubt in this history in the sense of like how who taught you Hebrew? It's an it's an extinct language. Um, but he says that the Hebrew said, "Thus far, the God of Joshua has saved us." And if you know your history, Joshua is the name of Jesus in in Hebrew. So it's it's really like a, a Judeo Christian house he found, <laughs> uh, but uh, in in the sense of like these were Jewish people that were calling on the name of of, of the God of Joshua, which is Joshua is the the other way you can translate Yeshua in in Aramaic and Hebrew and, and Arabic. Uh, it translates to either Jesus or Joshua, depending on what you want. Um, yeah. Anyway, I get the name. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, please, uh, please send that to me because I've I've heard multiple arguments as such. I mean, there's been you know kind of tar tar the Tartarian conspiracy theory that like, like I love that one circulating. <laughs> I, 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 I love that. I love that one because I'm a dirty Slav and I like anything that adds to the mythology of those people. <laughs> well, I mean, so not to go on a tangent of my own. Um, I don't know about the, the free energy bits, although there's some interesting arguments for that as oh, well. Yeah. But there is a there was a CIA document that was declassified in 1999 that of a CIA document um, from 1957 um, documenting that Joseph Stalin ordered the destruction of all Tartarian 
buildings, written history, and whatnot in September of 1944 because it was antithetical with Soviet ideology. So that exists. Uh, uh, um, so that part's real. I, I don't. I don't know. Like you know, mud floods and free energy. You know, like I've I've seen a level of retardation basically saying the Eiffel Tower is like a free energy antenna. Oh uh, uh, yeah, and those those are just fun. They're they're just fun. They're entertainment. I'll yeah. entertain that. Like, like I, I like to say, I always let ten percent of my brain just allow the possibility that the Earth is flat, just for fun, just for fun. <laughs> just maybe, just maybe. Yeah. Uh, I put yeah. in the private chat the the Pennsylvanian uh, guy. His name was uh, Gottlieb Mitterbergers. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you can put you can read that on your own time. There's a, a couple different versions of it, but it's a really nice little like, like this Lutheran German guy touring uh, the American colonies of Pennsylvania and, and documenting the good and the bad. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, next topic. <laughs> the other bit I want to talk about was like the, the origin. So you talked a lot about the origins of, of Christianity coming more from the traditions of the Essenes. Uh, as opposed to you know Jerusalem, the High Church or the High. Family. Yeah, I I make the argument that a lot of the Old Testament there's this like people have people have said I shouldn't call it two different religions, but there are two different perspectives in the Israelite region. One of these perspectives is what what became Judaism, and is and and was followed by the tribe of Judah, and it was uh uh believed by the temple officials and, and, the, and the urban priests. So it was a very urban religion that was primarily divided between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the two main antagonists of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. The Sadducees were Hellenists that wanted to integrate uh, Yahweh into the Greek pantheon somehow, or like maybe make him Jupiter or something. Uh, the Pharisees were more interested in continuing the, um, the more... Uh, Babylonian Persian influenced form of Judaism because by the time of Jesus the Judaism of the Old Testament had already gone extinct they had adopted a new alphabet uh, their language had been uh, shifted from Persian Babylonian rule there was not a whole lot of cultural continuation from the Old Testament other than like the cultural practices and that's about it the language had changed the alphabet had changed they they, they no longer wrote with the same letters the the hebrew you know of today the the box script that's derived from babylonian the original hebrew was more similar to the phoenician alphabet which later on became latin so the older old testament hebrews wrote more like the latins and the greeks um so this was basically like the urban religion of of what what we now call judaism Outside of the urban areas, there were a few other perspectives. There were the Zealots, who were a, a hodgepodge of Jews and other tribes that wanted to oppose the the Romans and Greeks. They were they were interested in independence, uh, and these formed violent revolutions that killed tens of thousands of Romans. At one point, I think the I think the Kita revolt. Look up the Kita revolt when you can. I think Kito Kito revolt. K I T O. That was one of the most brutal uh, revolts by the Zealots in history. I, th I think like two hundred thousand Romans died or something. It was it was a they genocide civilians like you can't believe it was it was a violent violent event in history. Yeah, you mentioned um, it was like this form of you know <laughs> highly effective Jewish terrorism when you're. It was highly effective terrorism. They were just burn down whole Roman colonies and slaughter everyone. It was it was really bad, uh, and and this is actually the. The, the the zealots were the group that eventually led Rome to say, you know what, fuck it, just just nuke it, nuke it all, nuke it from orbit, uh, like blow up Jerusalem a second time. One wasn't enough, um, 
And and then the final sect that's known about there might there are probably others that are not so well known about. You you could argue the Samaritans were another sect, um, because the Samaritans were an Aramaic speaking Syriac in uh, Syrian Empire influenced group of the ten tribes of Israel, not Judah, not the Jews. They were the other tribes of Israel. Uh, they were a mix of Indo-Europeans, Africans, and Asiatics that were conquered by the Syrian Empire, uh, and and they became Samaria. Samaria. Uh, Samaria is the rump state of what was once Israel. Fam you know, you might remember from the Bible, the country of Israel split into two between Judah, which became the Jews, and Israel, which became the Israelites. They're they're two distinct people. They're not the same. Uh, Israelites became Samaritans uh, after significant cultural uh, colonization from the Syrians. Uh, and the Samaritans still live to this day. They still speak a, uh, Aramaic, a Syriac language. They still write in a more Syrian style. They don't really have a whole lot of Judaism left in them. They're basically like borderline Muslims at this point. Um, and quite a number of them are Christian too. Like there's a there is a Christian Samaritan approach to things, um, and Jesus to some degree was influenced by them because Jesus, as you know, spoke Aramaic, not Judea, not not Hebrew. Uh, Jesus could speak Hebrew because it was an academic language, but in Jesus' day, Hebrew was going extinct, and so Jesus spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the Samaritans and the northern Syrian and the Syrian people. Uh, Aramaic is similar to Hebrew, not quite the same. There are differences. You, you can compare. Aramaic and Hebrew to something like uh, Italian and Spanish. That's like same root words, different grammar, basically a few different grammar things. Um, and so you can tell Jesus probably wasn't all that entirely Jewish himself because he wasn't speaking academic Hebrew. He was speaking Aramaic and Galilean Aramaic, which is like the country bumpkin language. Um, and then the last group was the Essenes. The Essenes lived in the deserts of Sinai and, and, uh, they were scattered in caves running from the Nile Delta to uh, in Sinai, not the Nile Delta, not really Sinai, east of the Nile, uh, up into uh, the the outskirts of the desert in in the, in the in the Dead Sea. So they were coast. They were they lived in the coast and in the, in the deserts and caves. They they formed communes. Uh, they lived in small communities, and they famously hated the Jews. <laughs> the they were Jewish themselves, to, to be clear. They hated. Jerusalem Jews. They they did not like the Jerusalem Jews. Famously, they 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 all got up and left the government. Uh, they walked out. Uh, they, there's a thing called the Sanhedrin that's mentioned in the New Testament. This is like the the, the kind of like the parliament of of the region. Uh, who's in the Sanhedrin is anyone's guess. You had primarily the Jews. It, it was the governing body of the Jews, but you know different groups of people came in there from Alexandria and, and Babylon. Uh, or Baghdad, rather, at that time. Uh, so the Sanhedrin was this like kind of like broad, pharisaical, Sadducee governing parliament, and the zealots, uh, uh, the zealots were—I don't think they were ever members, but the Essenes were members at one point, and they famously walked out. They they got fed up. They couldn't stand uh, the Jews of Jerusalem. They they just they condemned it all. They decided to say that the Second Temple was was a farce. Uh, it should never have been built. It was all nonsense. And as far as they were concerned, the exile was still happening from the from the Babylonians. They were still in exile even in their own country because they spiritually hadn't departed from the sins that caused the exile. There's a whole lot of things you can read about the, the Essenes, but uh, most famously, they wrote the Book of Enoch, my the book I continue to come to. Um, you can view Enoch as the as the magnum opus of sorts of the Essenes. It was their compiled uh, 
it was kind of like their gospels. Um, and the Essenes famously had a Trinitarian view of God, uh, a good 100 to 300 years before Jesus. Uh, they had a Trinitarian view in which they viewed God uh, as what they called the Ancient of Days, a father figure, uh, the Son of Man, this prophesied coming of God, and the Lord of Spirits, the, the Holy Spirit. So it's very Christian. It's, it's very Christian. Um, they, they understand God as Father, Son, and Spirit, basically, uh, in, in more than ways than they can. In, in vague ways, it was Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, the Essenes also believed that uh, a lot of the pagan religions around them were, were um, they weren't necessarily lies, but corruptions. So like famously, the, the Essenes viewed Gilgamesh as a, as a real person and, and a biblical person. Uh, I think at one point they equate Gilgamesh to Nimrod. I'm not sure. There's debatable. It's debatable. But they do say Gilgamesh was was a Nephilim giant of sorts that, after the flood, and he was a real person, and that he's a you know a character with 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 deals with God. So like they, they they kind of had a tendency to view the religions around them as a continuation of their own religion, not 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 as much so, so much as competition as as alternative like corruptions of the truth. Um, so they were very. Uh, open to talking to other groups of people, but they were very secretive and closed and, and they kind of devoted themselves to, to godly living. Uh, they were the closest thing to having a trad life in the middle of nowhere that you can find. <laughs> and it wasn't great. Um, no one really attacked the Essenes as far as I know. Like there's no, I don't think there's any documented wars with them. Like, like you have with the zealots, they just kind of kept to themselves. And then once Christianity started, they kind of just disappeared. And, and there's, there's pretty good reason to believe that the Essenes converted to Christianity. The most obvious one being that their literature ended up being canonical literature for the Ethiopians. And to, I think to a lesser degree, the Coptics, I don't remember. So like you, you can imagine if you're like Philip or other apostles heading South, you convert a bunch of Essenes and you bring them along the way to, to Ethiopia to convert the Ethiopians. So we know that the Essenes disappear when Christianity comes and that their books become, uh, they're quoted from in the gospels jesus and paul i think both no jesus and james both quote uh enoch i, I think jesus does i'm pretty sure jesus does i know james does uh so they quote from the essene literature they in some of the churches incorporate essene literature into their liturgy and and canon and the essenes themselves seem to just disappear afterwards so there, there's a good reason to believe that they basically became christians uh they seem to have had a pretty good understanding of who christ would be like centuries before Christ arrived. Again, they, they did view God as a Trinity. And so they would be very open to Christ's claims because they basically believed them already. Uh, I argue that these signs indicate that, that a large portion of Christianity probably comes out of a scene tradition, not the Pharisee tradition. Um, now I say that with, with a caveat it is very obvious that Jesus and John the Baptist were both Pharisees. They come from Pharisee families. They're you know, John the Baptist's father was a Pharisee and a high priest, and one of the high priests of of the temple. Um, I don't know if he was the high, it was a he's a priest official. If you read the if you read Luke, I think. Um, so, like you know, he was he was responsible for for worship in the temple. So he was a Pharisee. Uh, so it seems like John the Baptist broke from the Pharisees and went to join the Essenes because the way he worships and practices in the desert is very Essene like. Uh, the Pharisees coming to see. Uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament 
uh, it's sometimes presented as who's the strange guy in the desert. Most of these Pharisees probably worked for his father. They're, it's probably more like they're looking at this guy as like, what, why isn't he joining the priest like his father? It, it, you know, the priests rotate, the, the high priests rotate between clans, and it's possible that uh, his father's clan was up for, for re-election, and, and they were like, hey, John the Baptist, you want to be high priest? Wait, what the hell are you doing out here in the desert half-naked? What, 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 who are you? Your father was a great man. What would you become? Uh, from, from the Jewish perspective, John the Baptist was probably like like a child of anticipation, a child of promise, because you know his father went mute for nine months or something when, when he was born. And and like there's a miracle for his birth. There's, there's some reason that to, that the Jews might have thought that he was going to be a, like a heroic figure. Um, you know, famously they asked if he was the Christ because he he fulfilled some of the ideas of Christ. Um, and he was also born when that star constellation I mentioned was born. Oh, what happened? So like there was a possibility that from the Jewish perspective, may, maybe this John the Baptist guy was was the Messiah, and he says no, I'm not. <laughs> and then he goes out into the deserts and basically swears off his father's uh, inheritance and becomes a, a deserter scene and, and is killed for it. Uh, Christ also appears to have given up uh, his Pharisee status to some degree, at least because he's, he's called a Samaritan. He's called a desert guy. He's kind of rejected as a Jew by the Jews. Uh, even though like, you know, you know, Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth is, is um, John, John the Baptist's mother and Mary that they're, they're related. So it's, it's likely Jesus had a, uh, in ad in addition to his father uh, Joseph being of the line of David, his mother was of the line, probably of the line of Levi, if not Levi, somehow related because you know her cousin was the the mother of a high priest. Maybe they maybe Mary's actually of the tribe of Judah, and they just married into the Levi uh, tribe. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, th th that's a broad overview of of why Christianity probably seems to come from an Essene tradition and not. A Pharisee tradition, like Christianity, seems to be a formalization of the rejection of Judaism, not from Judaism. I think structurally that kind of checks out for the most part. Um, I mean, you and I come from slightly different traditions. Uh, the Orthodox belief is that the church is both a spiritual body and a physical body. Now, mm -hmm. in terms of spiritual praxis, I think you're right. In terms of, there's more. There are more parallels, there's more shared characteristics, there's more essence of the Essenes. And when we know that the book, you know, the Catholics and Orthodox both agree that the book of Acts is the, the, the beginning, it's the founding of the church, right? Yeah, yeah. The structure of the church comes from really from the Holy Spirit, from the sign of the Holy Spirit, as told by Christ uh, to, to wait for it uh, right before his ascension. Um, so the structure of that uh, comes from that, not necessarily the Pharisee tradition. Structure itself is obviously important, but if you look at the early church, there's bishops, right? There's patriarchs, there's patriarchs of Antioch and whatnot. And then there's desert hermits. And you're probably right with your hunch about the Coptics, um, you know, kind of carrying that Essene tradition because, you know, St. Christopher, all the desert fathers, you know, St. Mary of Egypt, so on and so forth. That's very reminiscent of an Essene tradition. Um, so you have like this this parallel to a Pharisee tradition that really was kind of built from a blank slate provided by God. Um, but the Essene, the Essene essence kind of remains in terms of the spiritual praxis. Like we have these we have these spiritual disciplines that we maintain, but it's very easy for those to just be checkboxes. We're often called to go further as Christians. Uh, and that 
that deep prayer, that deep concentration, and so, so not just prayer and scripture, but concentration with God and meditation with God and silence to understand our instruction of where we're supposed to walk. That's a very seen um, thing to hold, but that's been what's described as authentic faith by many, you know, many priests, schism saints, so on and so forth. So I think that's pretty sound. Uh, maybe a lot of people who are new to the Christian faith were kind of in that spurgy mode at the very beginning. They'd hear what you're saying and they'd they'd cry heresy when it's, it's just <laughs> the opposite. It's, it's providing more historical context and cultural context and anthropological context to something that um, surrounds our, our walk of faith. And if anything, it puts th more things in perspective and it helps us more in terms of apologetics and not necessarily yeah. debating pagans and ridiculous discourses online, but being able to state what it is that we believe and where it comes from in certain yeah. contexts that we may not have thought of in the past. Yeah. One of the, tragedies is i've because i haven't read the creeds in so long i'm starting to forget them and i kind of want to spend this the rest of easter like re re-memorizing the creeds because especially in the era we live in I, I think we really have to get ready to the possibility of, of giving testimony before we're killed right um this is a this is a possibility that's increasingly possible and if you can't preach the creeds with your last breath you, you've kind of failed to be a witness to some degree i think but i won't judge um but I, I also feel like, like, yeah, like that, that claim that like you, you have to be able to say what you believe. We, we've suffered from 500 years of Protestant like mud, like flinging on the creeds and, 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 you know, things that took centuries for, for men of great faith to develop really exact sciences around just, just were, were burned in the last like 500 years. It's kind of sad. Um, not even in the last 500 years, really in the last like 200 years, they were just all burned up and, and rejected, uh, which is, which is really just tragic. And, and that's really a heritage, which we have to reclaim and, and re rebuild because it's, it's been destroyed. Agreed. Agreed across the board. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you're on the East coast. It's 1130. I know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you and I could probably go on for hours. So I'd love to have you on again in the future. Um, but where can people find you? Yeah, I uh, on Telegram I run that Restoration Bureau art channel, um, which is always uh, it's always fun to find pagans not knowing who runs it and sharing my wonderful art because it is very pro um, European in a lot of the style and and an attempt to give reinvigorate people's love of their origin. Um, so I mean, by all, by all means, the Restoration Bureau is one of the places on Telegram on on. Um, on Twitter, I'm Elu Templar, slightly different than what you see on the name there, but you can link it in the video chapter in the video description later. Um, and then on YouTube, I I don't really have a YouTube channel. I, I do, but it's just like shitty music and and readouts of shitty things. Uh, same name though. Uh, yeah, actually, I think YouTube is just Lou Templar. Back when I was trying to be short form Elu Templar. <laughs> well, sounds great. You can follow the artist formerly known as Cringe Walker in the Templar <laughs> at all the on all the platforms he uh, he mentioned. Um, just a, some news on Blood and Rain front. Uh, the Prismatic Orthodox podcast uh, will be released soon. I'm having some trouble with the, the sound editing. There'll be another live guest uh, this Friday, and more you know within the bounds of Lent. You know, Christian theology or content creators who are Orthodox, either or. Uh, more to come, and there will be another Careless Press panel podcast 
Uh, and I'll be releasing an article on Careless Press very soon, why there's no peace without war. For those of you who know me, you know why this is something I want to write about. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really was a pleasure. Um, kind of scraped the surface of a lot of, uh, it's the tangents that get interesting. It's the tangents, you know, I want to further explore in the future. Um, I'm sure you will explore with your writing and my, my own research and probably further podcasts. But uh, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, if you want to end on, um, I can read that poem out from Virgil that might be a, a Roman prophecy of Christ. Please. Yeah, like, I, I was. I've been reading it out for a little bit because ever since Columbus showed me it, I'm like in love with this poem a little bit. I'll um, where is it? Okay. find it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, come on! Give me the actual poetry and translation. Eclogue for the golden. It's it's titled the Golden Age. So, um, I might change a few words here because I I know the Latin a little bit better than what's translated here. But anyway, it goes um, Muses of Sicily. Let me sing a little more grandly. Orchards and humble tamarisks don't please everyone. Uh, and in the Latin, I think he's saying, let me prophesy. Um, if I sing of the woods, let the woods be fit for counsel. Now the last age of the Kumiran prophecy begins. The great roll call of the centuries born anew. Now virgin justice returns and Saturn's reign. Now a new race descends from the heavens above. Only favor the child who's born, pure Lucian, under whom the first race of iron shall end, and a golden race shall rise up throughout the world. Now your Apollo reigns, for, for polio in your consulship, this noble age begins. And the noble mother, uh, and the, the noble moths begin their advance. Any traces of, of our evils that remain will be cancelled. While you lead and leave the earth free from perpetual fear, he will take on divine life and he will see gods mingled with heroes and be seen by them and rule a peaceful world with his father's power. And for you, boy, the uncultivated earth will pour out her first li uh, little gifts, strangling, uh, straggling ivory, clamoring everywhere, and the bean flower and the smiling these are flower names I can't pronounce. <laughs> the the goats will come home themselves, their udders swollen with milk, and the cattle will have no fear of fierce lions. Your your cattle, your cradle itself will pour out delightful delightful flowers, and the snakes will die, and the deceitful poison and the deceitful poisonous herbs will wither. Assyrian spice plants will spring up everywhere, and you will read both of her, of heroic glories and your father's deeds, and will soon know what virtue can be. The plain will slowly turn golden with tender wheat, and the ripe clusters hang on the wild briars, and the tough oak drip with dew with wet honey. Some small traces of ancient era will lurk that will command men to take to the seed ships and circle towns with walls, plow the earth with furrows and uh, and Pharaohs, uh, another Argo will arise to carry chosen heroes. A second Typhus will, as helmsman, there will be another war, and a great Achilles will be sent out once more to another great Troy. Then, when the strength of age has been made, uh, sorry, then when the strength of age has made you a man, the merchant himself, the merchant himself, will quit the sea, nor will the pine ship trade its goods, for every land will produce everything. The sorrow will not feel the hoe, nor the vine the pruning hook. The strong plowman, too, will free his oxen from the yoke. 
Wool will no longer be taut with counterfeit varied colors. The ram in the meadow will change his fierce to himself. Now to a sweet blushing purple, now to a, soft, a saffron yellow, scarlet will clothe the browsing lambs of its own accord. Let such ages roll on, the fates said, in harmony, to the spindle with the power of inexorable destiny. O oh, dear child of the gods, take up your high honors. The time is near, great son of Jupiter. See the world with the weighty dome bowing, earth and wide sea and deep heavens. See how everything delights in the future age. Oh, let the last days of a long life remain for me, and in this in separation to tell how great your deeds will be. Thracian, Orophis, and Linnaeus will not overcome me in song. Through, though his mother helps the one, his father the other. Calliopes, Orophis, and, and lovely Apollo Linus. Even Pan, if he com complete if he competes with me, with will with or Arcadia's judge. Even great Pan with Arcadia's judge would account himself beaten. Little child, begin to recognize your mother with a smile. Ten months have brought a mother's long labor. Little child, begin, he on whom his parents do not smile. No god honors at his banquets. No goddess at her bed. At her bed. It's quite a nice song, a poem, isn't it? Absolutely. It's uh, it's for, it's very fluttery Greco-Roman, but there's a weight to it. That's you. You, you might have heard you uh, quotes from Isaiah in there with like the lion and the and the lamb laying at peace. Because uh, he, he read Isaiah and he and he integrated some of the imagery from Isaiah into this. This is written about thirty years before Christ is born, and he was about. 30 or 40 years old so that, that line like please made me have the years to see you is it's just it's really heart-wrecking because you know he's going to die before christ comes and he's he's praying that he'll live just long enough to see the event wow gosh it's both beautiful and gut-wrenching when you think about it in context. <laughs> yeah. <Wow>. anyway <laughs> well thank you so much for that that was lovely and uh thank you so much uh for being here and to all the listeners um give Give a how do I pronounce the new name? What? How do I pronounce the new name again? Sorry, Alu Templar. Alu Templar. Yeah. Give him, give him a follow across platforms. Uh, are fascinating reads. Are fascinating listens. And as always, listeners, good night, good storms. God bless. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>